This is God's word for us this morning. From Romans 11, verses 1 through 10. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scriptures say of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Let's say amen together, church. Amen. amen. Thank you, Sonia. Let's go ahead and take our Bibles and turn to the passage that was just read, Romans chapter 11. I want to welcome those of you who are watching now to uh, join with us as we are opening up God's Word. We're working through this great book of the Bible, the book of Romans in the New Testament, and today we find ourselves in a new chapter in Romans 11. And just as an introduction to the message today, uh, I, I want to start, if I can, just by being painfully honest with you about something. Can I do that this morning? This last week for me uh, was equally frustrating and convicting. And I was frustrated, I think probably a lot of us were, by things that took place this last week, and convicted too as well by how often I've gotten things wrong in my life. I just had a sense of, Tony, you're just, you're not as smart as you think you are. And I mean, that's hard for me. I like to think of myself as somebody who has wisdom and a pretty, pretty good sense of what's going on in the world. I think of myself as pretty good at prognosticating what's going on in our world, cultural events, world events, pandemics, so forth. And I was reminded this last week, again, that I don't know nearly as much as I think I do and that I'm utterly dependent upon God for everything in my life. It was a good realization, although it was embarrassingly painful a lot this last week. And all of this conviction, all of this frustration, even a little bit of self-loathing this last week has led me to a singer-songwriter named Keith Green and a song that I used to sing in my 20s. Keith Green, if you don't know who that is, he died about 40 years ago in a plane crash in East Texas. 
I was like four years old when he died, but his music resonated beyond his death, and it was really powerful in my life when I was a young man. And I came back to this song this last week. Keith Green writes this in his song, Trials Turn to Gold. So the view from here is nothing near to what it is for you. I tried to see your plan for me, but I only acted like I knew. Oh, Lord, forgive the times I tried to read your mind. Because you said if I'd be still, then I would hear your voice. The lyric that has been kind of reverberating in my heart and in my mind all this last week is this one. Oh, Lord, forgive the times I've tried to read your minds. That bad habit of mine has gotten me to a place of frustration and conviction again and again and again. And I could say, I could even tell you right now, it'll never happen again. I'll never do it again, Lord. I'll never try to read your mind again, but I probably will. I'll probably make this mistake again. Praise God for grace, right? For pastors. (laughs) So Romans 11, what in the world does that have to do with Romans 11, Pastor Tony? Well, I see at the beginning of Romans 11, people trying to read God's mind. Verse 1, it says, has God rejected his people? So, you know, you you can almost hear the voices of people. So, So God has rejected the Jews, right, Paul? That's what you're saying, right, Paul? God has forsaken the Israelites. That's what you said in Romans 9 and 10. Paul says, no, that is not what I'm saying. That's not what God is doing. And then Paul goes on to explain how God does what God does, what God is doing, how God is both sovereignly bestowing grace on those whom he pleases and also sovereignly hardening others. So two main points for the message this morning. You can see these in your notes and write them down. There is God's sovereign work of grace, verses 1 to 6, and there is God's sovereign work of hardening verses 7 to 10. Sovereign grace, sovereign hardening. That's what we have here. Those are the unmistakable works of God, and Paul writes about them both. Let's start with grace, because I'd rather talk about grace, quite frankly. And that's where Paul starts here. That's the fun part, sovereign grace. God's sovereign work of grace in verses 1 to 6. Paul shows us three places where God's grace is evident, even when we might assume that it, it shouldn't be there or... You know, God shouldn't display his grace in a certain way or in the way that he is. And Paul starts with himself. Paul says, God sovereignly works grace. And I'll give you an example of the fact that God hasn't given up on the Israelites. Paul gives us the example of himself. You can write this down under 1A. God's grace shown to Paul. God's sovereign work of grace has been shown in the life of Paul. Paul says, verse 1, I ask then, has God rejected his people? Has, has God rejected his people? Has God forsaken the Israelites then, Paul? Has he now? I mean, I mean, I understand the question. It's a very Gentile question to ask. Paul just spent the last two chapters, Romans 9 and 10, talking about how the Jewish people have continually rejected Messiah Jesus, and that breaks Paul's heart. The Jewish people have rejected Jesus. Has God rejected the Jewish people? Did God reject them first, or did they reject God first? It's kind of like your girlfriend in high school. Who dumped who first? I dumped her first. No, she dumped me first. You know, it was mutual. 
Yeah, sure it was. Who dumped who first? Paul says, no, God didn't dump anybody. By no means has God forsaken the Israelites. How do you know that, Paul? I'm your test case right here. By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Has God rejected his people, the Israelites? Paul says, no, I'm an Israelite. Thank you very much. God didn't dump me. I haven't dumped him. John Chrysostom, church father, he said it this way, 1,600 years ago. He said, God has not rejected his people because Paul himself was one of them. If God had cast them off, he would not have chosen one of them as the one to whom he entrusted all his preaching, the affairs of the world, all the mysteries and the whole message of salvation. I said a few weeks ago, did I? I mean, who wrote the, old, who wrote the New Testament? They're all Jews who wrote the New Testament, the people of God, except maybe Luke. So I think this is a very Gentile way of thinking. God must have rejected the Jews, and now he's only dealing with the Gentiles. I think if I can be honest for a moment as a Gentile, if I can be a little bit self-critical of us Gentiles, I, I think that's because we mistakenly think that God has forever rejected the people of Israel. And we discount God's plan for Israel. We've been doing that for 2,000 years. I even read this last week that the mild-mannered C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors, he dealt with a period of anti-Semitism in his life, struggled with it. And it wasn't just him. We've seen these kinds of things emerge within the church for 2,000 years Martin Luther says some things about Jews in his writings that'll make you cringe when you read them. And this has been a troubling part of Christianity for 2,000 years. I, I admit that as a Gentile. We've, we've had a problem with this. And yet at the same time, God has always had a remnant of Jewish believers that have been part of the church. They might not be as prominent or as preponderant as Gentile Christians, but they're still out there, even in our day. Jewish believers in Jesus Christ. They've been historically part of the church for 2,000 years. I'll give you a few examples of that, some famous examples. Benjamin Disraeli, the famous 19th century prime minister of England. He was a Jewish Christian. Felix Mendelssohn, the composer who wrote, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. My favorite Christmas carol, that song, we're going to sing it in a few weeks at Christmas time. Some of you are singing it already. That, that song was composed by a Jewish Christian. Not the lyrics, but the music. Felix, Felix Mendelssohn. Joy Davidman, the famous author and wife of C.S. Lewis, was Jewish. I just talked about C.S. Lewis. How ironic that he married a Jew later in life. And not just a Jew, but a Jewish Christian. I found out this last week that Keith Green had a Jewish background. I didn't even know that. I didn't even know that when I picked that as the opening illustration of this message. Keith Green had a Jewish upbringing. So did his wife, Melody Green. It's, I mean, it's not just public either. I mean, these things are personal for me. I went to Moody Bible Institute. I have several friends who are Jewish Christians, Jewish followers of Jesus Christ, the man, the professor at Moody Bible Institute, Michael Wexler, who taught me Hebrew, is a Jewish follower of Jesus. 
And so these are, these are personal things for me as well. So when Paul asks rhetorically, has God rejected his people? I think all of us can say with Paul, Meganoita, absolutely not, by no means. And, you know, just as a parallel here in our own world right now, you know, there are times when I can get really discouraged about what's going on in our country and what's going on in America. And, and, and I think in my, you know, more despairing moments, oh, God, you've, re- you've rejected America. You've turned away from us. You know, it's like when I listen to Al Mohler's podcast too much in the morning. And then after a while, I'm like, oh, God, we're, we're abandoned. Now, I'm still going to listen to those podcasts, okay? Don't get me wrong. But when I, I mean, that's when I'm lamenting. But when I can get my senses back together, I think to myself, wait a second, I'm an American. You know, Harvest Decatur, last time I checked, we're in America, right? Is that true? You guys seem confused. Has God, has God abandoned America? No, because we're still here and God is still doing his work here. And Jesus told us himself, I am with you always to the end of the age. I will never, never leave you nor forsake you. Paul has a similar experience here when he says God has not abandoned his people or rejected his people, the Israelites. I am proof positive of that right here. Look at verse 2. Here's the theological freight behind that. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. In other words, there is a remnant of people within Israel, including Paul, whom God foreknew all along the way would embrace Christ and follow Christ. Sure, lots and lots of people in Paul's day have rejected Jesus, but also lots of Jews have embraced Jesus too. Think about Peter and John in the New Testament. They're Jewish, very Jewish. Think about Thomas and Nathaniel. Think about Barnabas and Apollos. Even Timothy, even Timothy was half Jewish. His mom was Jewish. And if you know any Jewish families, you know that if your mom is Jewish, you're Jewish. <laughs> Think about the 3,000 people that got saved at Pentecost. That wasn't that far before when Paul got converted, long before. Think about the 3,000 people that got saved and baptized in Jerusalem at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. All 3,000 of those people were Jewish, and all of them God foreknew. It's interesting to me how Paul once again defers to God's sovereignty. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. God's going to get done what God wants to get done. Don't try to guess what God is doing. He's got this. He's got the whole world in the palm of his hands. He's got every believer that is going to receive him in the palm of his hands. He's got all of human history in the palm of his hands. Now, we shouldn't try to read God's mind or guess what he's doing. But what Paul says next is what, what, what God is doing in his day, it's, it's not unheard of either. There is a paradigm for this. There is a typology even. And it has to do with this Old Testament character named Elijah. You can write this down as number two in your notes. Paul gives us a second example here from the Old Testament. The first was God's grace to Paul. Now Paul's going to talk about God's grace shown to Elijah Paul says in verse 2, do you not know what the scriptures say of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they, can, they are seeking my life. Can you feel the despair in Elijah's words right here? I like the way Sonia read it. I mean, it's just, oh, God, I'm the only one left. Elijah, by the way, he lived and he ministered, and and. 
the time of Israel's deepest apostasy. King Ahab, one of the most evil and worthless kings that ever ruled over Israel, was ruling. His wife was the idol-worshiping Phoenician queen named Jezebel. She was actively destroying Yahweh worship throughout Israel and replacing it with Baal and Asherah worship. Elijah made the mistake way back then in the time of Ahab of guessing what God was doing in the world. And, and he said very dramatically, oh God, you know, I'm dead. We're all dead. This guy's falling. He's, you don't know what you're doing, God. I'm the last one left. You know, Elijah, Elijah, bless his heart. He's a prophet. He's a preacher. You guys know preachers were emotional. He's emotional and he hyperbolizes here. I'm the only one left. What does God say about that? Look at verse 4. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept. Calm down, Elijah. My paraphrase. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Here's what God says. I beg your pardon, Elijah. You're the only one left. I beg your pardon. I got 7,000 people, Elijah, we're okay. And besides that, I got the whole world in the palm of my hands. Don't you worry now. I think part of what God is saying here to Elijah is, Elijah, if you die, we'll be okay. We'll be okay, you know, which probably hurt Elijah's feelings. I know it would hurt my feelings if you told me that. What's God telling Elijah? We really don't need you as much as you think we need you, Elijah. We like to think of ourselves as irreplaceable, don't we? I do anyway in my weak moments is indispensable. And God says, no, I'm good, Elijah. We'll be all right without you. By the way, notice how the Old Testament scripture here balances God's sovereignty and human responsibility. God says, I have kept, in verse 4, I have kept 7,000. And then he says, 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. God's sovereignty, I have kept human responsibility, not bowed the knee. You know, it's funny as you read Paul, as you read God in the Old Testament talking, it's funny how they mix together God's sovereignty and human responsibility, and they don't, they don't seem bothered by it. They don't feel the need to philosophically crack the code of how those things come together. They just say it. It's there together. Deal with it. Let me give you a little bit of historical context here for this statement from Elijah. Elijah says in 1 Kings, Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. I alone, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. Elijah said that in 1 Kings 19. And it was after the most amazing experience in his life in 1 Kings 18 when God showed up incredibly. Elijah had just had this amazing encounter with the priests of Baal. Here's what happened. Elijah, he went up to Mount Carmel with these priests of Baal, and they, they had a little contest to see whose God is greater. Is it Baal or is it Yahweh? Who's, who's going to conjure up fire here on this altar on top of Mount Carmel? So they have this little contest, and Elijah very gentlemanly lets these 450 priests of Baal go first. Go ahead, you know, work it up. Try to get Baal to make some fire here. So these priests of Baal, they, they start wailing. They start crying out. They start their religious exercises. They even start cutting themselves and wailing like maniacs to, to get Baal to bring fire on Mount Carmel. Nothing happens. You know what Elijah does in that moment? He starts to mock them. 
I'm, I'm not joking. This, this used to be Alistair's favorite story when he was a kid, and we'd read it in the Action Bible. He, we would read this, and he would laugh and laugh and laugh. Elijah would, you know, maybe Baal can't hear you. You need to talk louder. Maybe Baal is in the bathroom relieving himself. That's why he can't hear you. That's in the Hebrew, folks. That statement. I'm not making that up. And after, of these, and after these priests of Baal, they royally fail to get the job done. Elijah prays to the Lord, and the Lord rains down fire from heaven and whoosh, consumes the altar and everything in that area. And, and it's so awe-inspiring among the people. The people bow down before the Lord and start yelling, the Lord is God, Yahweh is God, Yahweh is God. Hallelujah, take that, Baal. I wish God would do that in Decatur right now. But then right after that, so Elijah has this amazing experience on Mount Carmel. And after that, Queen Jezebel gets angry and he threatens his life. So Elijah gets scared and he runs for his life and he runs away and he's alone and he's depressed and he asks God to let him die and he's an emotional wreck. And he says, why God, why? The people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I am left only. And they seek my life to take it away. You know what God does in that moment? Paul doesn't talk about this. Just some more historical background. God says, all right, all right, calm down, little prophet, you know. And then he gives him some stuff to do. Go do this. Go do something. Quit being alone. You know, you need some work to do. Sometimes that's what we need when we're isolated and oppressed. Like, go do some stuff. And then he says this. He says, don't worry, Elijah, I got this. You're not alone. I've got 7,000 people who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And, you know, I don't really think it's about the number. 7,000 is a lot of people in ancient Israel. I mean, that's a lot. But I don't really think it's about the number. I don't think, I don't think it would matter if it was 700 or if it was seven people. What God is really saying is there's no reason to despair, Elijah. I am in control. I have my remnant. I have my people that I've called. There's no reason for you to freak out and get all dis despairing here, especially in light of what just happened on Mount Carmel. But it just goes to show, you know, it's not even when people see these miraculous things of God, they still despair and they need to be reminded God is in control. God is in control. I love this statement from Grant Osborne in his commentary on Romans. You can read this on the screen. When God is in charge, a small number, like the 7,000 in Elijah's time or 12 in Jesus' time, is in reality a vast, invincible army. It's not really about the number. It's about God is in control. God can do what he wants to do. And this is what Paul is stressing in Romans. This is what Paul is using that story of Elijah to communicate. Look at verse 5. So too at the present time, there is a remnant. Elijah had a remnant. He had his 7,000. There's a remnant in my time, and I'm one of them, says Paul. There is a remnant chosen by grace. Go ahead and write this down as 1C in your notes. We saw God's grace shown to Paul. We see God's grace shown to Elijah. Now we see God's grace shown to a remnant. So, too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, now this is important, look at verse 6. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. In other words, God's sovereign grace is going to accomplish what God wants to accomplish. 
that's the nature of grace is that it has to be sovereign. Yes, Paul is brokenhearted about the Jews. We've seen that. Yes, Paul is anxious to get the message out to his people. Yes, Paul said in the previous chapter, how can they believe without hearing the gospel? And how can they hear the gospel without someone preaching it to them? Yes, yes, yes. We do what God calls us to do, but then we leave the results to God and his sovereign determination. I heard in a podcast this last week. We preach like an Arminian and we sleep like a Calvinist. That speaks to this emotional pastor's heart. We do our duty before God and then we go to sleep and we trust God with the results. And we don't freak out or despair. And God assures us that there is a remnant chosen by him that remains as part of his fulfillment, part of the fulfillment of his promise. Notice, if you will, how Paul works in the grace, not works theme in verse 6. Everybody see that? It's not works. It's not works. Paul can't drift too far from that grace-based salvation. That is the theological axiom that's built into the book of Romans. It's not by, it's not by works. You're not saved by works, people. And we're like, yeah, Paul, we know. You've said it like a hundred times in the book of Romans. Well, I need to say it again. And he's saying it again. He's saying it again here in a different way because he wants to explicitly link the idea of sovereignty with grace. And he wants to explicitly link the concept of a remnant with the concept of grace. Not works, grace. Tim Keller says it this way. You can read this on the screen. Paul means this in verses 5 and 6. What guarantees that there will always be a faithful remnant is not that there is always a good, uh, there is always a set of good, decent people who will believe, but rather that there is always the grace of God. It is God who preserves a remnant. Those who believe do so entirely because of grace. Here's the question I've been asking myself this week, and maybe you're asking it too. I mean, Paul's talking about Jews here and the Israelite people, and he's going to deal with that even further in Romans 11. But I've asked myself, you know, is God going to preserve a remnant of Christ followers here in America? Is God going to do that, Pastor Tony? Well, we don't have the same promise that Paul gives to the Jews here in Romans 11 and even in the Old Testament. But I think the answer to that is yes, because that, has, that is consistent with the way that God works. That is consistent with his pattern throughout history in Israel and Egypt and Turkey and Germany and France and England. God preserves a remnant even in those places. And if God, I'll tell you this too. So I do think no matter what happens in our country, God will preserve a remnant. But I I want you all to know that if God does that, if God chooses to do that in America, it won't be because we are so deserving of it as Americans. So much more deserving than those other lousy heathens from other countries. If God chooses to do that, it is by pure grace that he does that. Because we, like everybody else, are undeserving. So God, please do that and grow your remnant here in this country. Here's where our text gets a little more sobering. So brace yourself. You know, we love, we love talking about grace, <laughs> We love talking about God's sovereignty when it's linked to grace. 
We love talking about God's sovereignty when things are going great in our lives. Yeah, God is sovereign. When things, when there's a pandemic, we're like, oh, God's sovereignty, I don't like this. But what Paul says here is the same sovereignty that determines God's grace also determines the hardening of the hearts of unbelievers in verses 7 through 10. So go ahead and write this as a second point in your notes. There's God's sovereign work of grace. There's also God's sovereign work of hardening. Paul says in verse 7, what then? What then? It's the shortest rhetorical question in Romans. What then? What should we conclude about all this? Here's the conclusion. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. They have zeal without knowledge. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, the elect Jews, but I would add the Gentiles into that too. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. God rejects Israel, but not all Israel. God sovereignly chooses by grace his elect, and God sovereignly hardens the rest. Is Israel still held responsible for her, act, her actions before God? Yes. God is sovereign and man is responsible. Put both of those in your theological pipe and smoke them. That's what we learn in the Bible. In fact, the same language that is used of Pharaoh in the Old Testament is used of Israel here by Paul. Can I just tell you that would have been incredibly offensive to a Jewish person in Paul's day. God is hardening your hearts, Israelites, just like he did Pharaoh in, the old, Pharaoh in the Old Testament, the greatest enemy of the Jewish people. You're saying God is doing to us what he did to them. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh hardens his heart. God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh hardens his heart. God says that same thing's happening right now. The Jews are hardening their heart against Messiah Jesus. God is hardening his heart against the Jews. The same pattern there is emerging in the hearts of the people of Israel. As it is written, here's how Paul backs this with scripture. Whenever Paul really wants to hammer home, a, hammer home a point, especially when it has to do with the Jews of his day. He goes to the Old Testament. And so he quotes in verse 8, Isaiah 29, verse 10, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. Jesus said of the Jews in his day, if you remember, they're, they're ever hearing, never understanding. Remember that? Ever seeing but not perceiving. Jesus was quoting Isaiah too. Isaiah's got a lot of good stuff. And they're basically saying the same thing. There are people that their hearts have been hardened, and you can preach till you're blue in the face to somebody. If God doesn't awaken their soul to salvation, it's not going to take. God has to do the awakening there. And Paul is not content just to quote one passage on this. He quotes another passage, this time from David in the book of Psalms, verse 9. David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Oof, goodness. The table there... Paul says, let their table become a snare. The, the table in the Jewish world is a symbol of fellowship. You have table meals together with, with one another, but also with the Lord. There's these ceremonies in the Old Testament that involve the table. And sharing a fellowship, there's closeness. The Jews had a closeness to God by virtue of their ethnicity. They were the sons and daughters of, of Abraham. But what 
Paul is saying here is that that closeness, that table fellowship that they had, that table has now become a snare. Their table has become a stumbling block that they've tripped over. Familiarity has bred contempt with Israelites. And David says, let their eyes be darkened, bend their backs forever. By the way, David, that Psalm, Psalm 69, this is one of the great prophetic pieces of scripture in the Old Testament where Jesus and his suffering according to his enemies and even allusion to the crucifixion is made in Psalm 69. And and David talks about his enemies in that passage. His enemies, according to David at that time, were not Israelites. But now Paul is using these words to speak of Israelites in Paul's day that have become the enemies of God. And there's great irony in that. The sons of David, the Israelites, have become the enemies David wrote about because of their rejection of the son of David, Jesus Christ. Did you all get that? The sons of David, the Israelites, have become the enemies David wrote about in Psalm 69 because of their rejection of the son of David, Jesus Christ. Their eyes are darkened. Their backs are bent. Their necks are stubborn. Their hearts are hardened. Their spirits are stupefied. Put to sleep is what that word means in Hebrew. God has put them to sleep and they're not waking up unless God awakens them. Even as I read this now, even as I think about it, even as I look at your faces, this is hard stuff. I don't like this. And if I can be honest with you, you know, this whole idea that God has to awaken someone's heart and it doesn't ultimately depend upon me, I don't, I mean, that's frustrating to me, but it's also comforting to me. I'll tell you why it's both. You know why that's frustrating to me? Because I like to be eloquent. I try. I like to be persuasive. I, I like to use my apologetics. I, I like to convince people of their sinfulness. And when people get saved or harvest decayed, I like to think, you know, it has something to do with that. It's the eloquence of my words, the persuasiveness of my lips, the use of phrasing. And what God says here is, that's not going to happen. Not unless I do the work behind the scenes. And that's, that's, I like being in control, too. And God says, you're not in control. I'm in control. So that's, that's frustrating to me. But, you know, that's, that's in my, best, my, my worst moments. It's frustrating. In my better moments, it's actually really comforting. You know why? It's comforting because I don't, have to hold myself responsible for fumbling the gospel presentation, which I've done a lot of, by the way. There's been a lot of times I'm trying to share my faith and I'm just like, what what did I just say? I don't even know what I just said. And if it all hinged upon me and my persuasiveness, I would despair. Man, that guy's going to hell because of me, because I couldn't get it out. You don't have to live with that kind of onus, with that kind of burdensomeness. God has to do that work. You know, this really came clear to me as a young pastor. I remember preaching in Arthur 10 years ago or so. And this guy came to our church, and I knew this guy didn't know the Lord. I only saw him once at our church, and 
you know, I was preaching that day, trying to be persuasive with my sermon, and I didn't preach that well that day. Can I tell you that? So I was like, I'll make up for it. So after the service, I went up to him, and I, I was like Johnny Butterfingers with the gospel football. I just blew a little. And, I, you know, I walked away from that conversation with this guy, trying to share my faith, trying to share the gospel. And I'm just like, what, what were you saying, idiot? Get it out. Talk, you know. And so, I, you know, I was sad, depressed. I was young, passionate, insecure preacher, you know. And one of my elders came up to me after that, and I was kind of unloading all of this on him. This is Chris Helmuth, if you guys know Chris. And, and he said something that was really encouraging that I needed to hear at that moment. He said, Tony, you know, God doesn't need you to be perfect in your proclamation of the gospel to get somebody saved. And I, I can't remember specifically, but he just talked about times, even in his own life, when people had preached the gospel really, really imperfectly, and somebody got saved. And it was almost like God did the work for them that they couldn't get out. And I really needed to hear that in that moment. That doesn't hinge upon me. It doesn't rely upon me for these things. I can just relax, do my job to the best of my ability, and then leave it to the Lord. And if I, fought, if I fumble the gospel football, God will do his work even despite that. Look, I know this is tough for us to understand and maybe even for us to swallow, but God sovereignly chooses those who follow him, whether it's Paul and the 3,000 people in Jerusalem in the book of Acts or Elijah and the 7,000 people in the Old Testament or Pastor Tony and his church of 150 people in Decatur, Illinois. God didn't have to save any of us, but he does. And he's good, and we can trust him to do what he promises. And we can do our work and trust him to do with it whatever he chooses to do. And I don't know, ultimately, who is saved and who's not saved, who I'm sharing the gospel with. I don't know who, who's elect and who's not elect. All I know is my own commitment to the Lord and what the Lord has promised me. And I don't, I don't know what tomorrow holds. I don't know what's going to take place tomorrow. If 2020 has taught me anything, it's that only God can be trusted with prognostications in the future. Every other prognostication you have to take with a grain of salt. All I know is that I have faith in Jesus Christ. My eternity is with him. God sovereignly does his work of grace. And to the best of my knowledge, he has done that in my life. And I can... Hold fast to that truth. And at the same time, he does sovereignly his work of hardening. Amen and amen, so be it. May God be praised. I'll close with this. Some of y'all know that as I age, I've been trying to keep track of people who die at my age, famous people. It's kind of weird, I know. <laughs> it's kind of ghoulish. But it's a reminder to me that, you know, life is short. So when I turned 30, I remember thinking, I've outlived Robert Murray McShane. I've outlived Keith Green. And that was really sobering. When I turned 34, I was thinking, wow, I've 
lived here now on earth longer than Jesus did before his death and resurrection. I remember turning 40 and thinking, I've, I've outlived Martin Luther King Jr. I've outlived Diedrich Bonhoeffer. This last year I turned 42 and I, I think I told you all already, Stephen Decatur died at age 42. You know, and I, I hope I don't die like him and, and a duel with pistols. I don't think that's going to happen. But I'm not promised another day. I found out this last week that one of my favorite hymn writers, Frances Havergal, she died at age 42. And that was sobering for me. Havergal, she wrote some of my favorite songs, Take My Life and Let It Be, Like a River Glorious. I sang these songs when I was a kid. We still sing some of these songs. Well, Havergal, she wrote this song in 1877, just a few years before she died. And the hymn is entitled, Who is on the Lord's Side? I want to close with this. Havergal writes, Who is on the Lord's side? Who will serve the king? Who will be his helpers, other lives to bring? Who will leave the world's side? Who will face the foe? Who is on the Lord's side? Who for him will go? By thy call of mercy, by thy grace divine, we are on the Lord's side, Savior, we are thine. Not for weight or glory, not for crown or palm. Enter we, the army, raise the warrior psalm. But for love that claimeth lies for whom he died, he whom Jesus saveth marches on his side. By thy love constraining, by thy grace divine, we are on the Lord's side. Savior, we are thine. Jesus, thou hast bought us not with gold or gem, but with thine own life blood for thy diadem, with thy blessing filling each who comes to thee. Thou hast made us willing, thou hast made us free. By thy grand redemption, by thy grace divine, we are on the Lord's side. Savior, we are thine. 42 years old she was when she died. Some of you are like, well, I've got a few years on her. Yeah, this life is short. Whose side are you on in eternity? I feel like I've said this already a number of times from this pulpit, but I'm just going to say it again. I don't know who is saved and unsaved in this world. I don't know who's elect and who's not. I don't know who the recipient of God's sovereign grace is and who's the recipient of God's sovereign hardening. I don't know. Please don't ask me. I don't know. I already told you today. Lord, forgive the times I've tried to read your mind. I don't know God's sovereign plan for others in this world. I, I don't even know God's plan for this next week. All I know, all I can say for myself is that Jesus Christ is my Savior. He's my Lord. He belongs to me. I belong to him. And I'm going to follow him till I die. Come follow me. Come follow me in that. Let's follow Christ together. We are on the Lord's side. Savior, we are thine. Lord Jesus, we are. 
if I can speak boldly for the people who are gathered here, people watching now, Lord. We are your elect. You died for us. You love us. You've given us this great gospel mission that sometimes, Lord, honestly, we fumble. We fail. Sometimes, like Elijah, we despair. We're all alone. But, Lord, you are with us. You're doing your sovereign work in this world. You're even using us, Lord, imperfect people that we are to represent you, to love others, to share the gospel. God, thank you for that. We are not worthy of that. Lord, we don't know what this world holds. We don't know what the future holds. We too readily try to guess. I know I do. God, you know these things. You are sovereign over them. So we submit our lives and our wills to you, Lord. We don't know, but you do, and that's enough. So Lord, take these lives, take these mouths that can be a gospel witness for you and use them for your purposes, I pray. Take these lips right now, Lord. These imperfect instruments of praise. These vocal cords that sometimes don't sing on key. And use them to worship you and to praise you. Receive our worship now, we pray in the name of Jesus.